Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Emma Scanlon, Toddle Lee, Francesca R., and Catherine Barrett. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. I really, really appreciate it. And for anyone listening who doesn't know, these names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a wonderful site that you can go and support creators of the work that you like directly. So, if Sleepy has become part of your nightly routine, 
Maybe it's helped you get a good night's rest. Then just consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. At $5 a month, there are cool perks like um, access to over 50 extra poetry readings that are not on the regular podcast feed. But no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you would like to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Wow. Tonight, we have a very, very, very old story on the show. I'll be reading from The Republic, penned by Plato. Around here, 375 BC. This is a very philosophical reading. I'm going to start uh, kind of from the beginning, and um, you'll be hearing a lot of uh, really cool Greek names being thrown around. I could personally go to sleep to just a list of uh, eccentric Greek names being read in a list. It's really fun to read. And this reading specifically has to do with justice um, and what justice is. And it is very, very philosophical. We can feel a bit rambling, which is perfect for our purposes tonight. So, I hope that this reading of The Republic by Plato helps you doze off into a deep, deep slumber. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. Book One I went down yesterday to the Piraeus with Glaucon, the son of Ariston, that I might offer up my prayers to the goddess, Bendis, the Thracian Artemis, and also because I wanted to see in what manner they would celebrate the festival, which was a new thing. I was delighted with the procession of the inhabitants, but that of the Thracians was equally, if not more, beautiful. When we had finished our prayers and viewed the spectacle, we turned in the direction of the city, and at that instant, Polymarchus, the son of Cephalus, chanced to catch sight of us from a distance as we were starting on our way home and told his servant to run and bid us wait for him. The servant took hold of me by the cloak behind, and said, Polymarchus desires you to wait. I turned around, and asked him where his master was. There he is, said the youth, coming after you, if you will only wait. Certainly we will, said Glaucon, and in a few minutes Polymarchus appeared, and with him Adamantus, Glaucon's brother, Neseratus, the son of Nicias, and several others who had been at the procession. Polymarchus said to me, I perceive, Socrates, that you and your companion are already on your way to the city. You are not far wrong, I said. But do you see, 
he rejoined, how many we are. Of course. And are you stronger than all these? For if not, you will have to remain where you are. May there not be the alternative, I said, that we may persuade you to let us go. But can you persuade us if we refuse to listen to you, he said. Certainly not, replied Glaucon. Then we are not going to listen. Of that you may be assured. Adiamantus added, Has no one told you of the torch race on horseback in honor of the goddess, which will take place in the evening? With horses, I replied, that is a novelty. The horsemen carry torches and pass them one to another during the race. Yes, said Polymarchus, and not only so, but a festival will be celebrated at night, which you certainly ought to see. Let us rise soon after supper and see this festival. There will be a gathering of young men, and we will have a good talk. Stay then, and do not be perverse. Glaucon said, I suppose since you insist that we must. Very good, I replied. Accordingly, we went with Polymarchus to his house, and there we found his brothers, Lysias and Euthydemus, and with them, Thracamasus and Chalcedonian, Charmantides, the Panaean, and Clytophon, the son of Aristonymus. There, too, was Cephalus, the father of Polymarchus, whom I had not seen for a long time, and I thought him very much aged. He was seated on a cushioned chair and had a garland on his hat, for he had been sacrificing in the court, and there were some other chairs in the room arranged in a semicircle, upon which we sat down by him. He saluted me eagerly, and then he said, You don't come to see me, Socrates, as often as you are. If I were still able to go and see you, I would not ask you to come to me. But at my age, I can hardly get to the city, and therefore you should come oftener to the Piraeus. For let me tell you, that the more the pleasures of the body fade away, the greater to me is the pleasure of charm of conversation. Do not then deny my request, but make our house your resort and keep company with these young men. We are old friends, and you will be quite at home with us. I replied, There is nothing which for my part I like better, Cephalus, than conversing with aged men, for I regard them as travelers who have gone a journey which I too may have to go, and of whom I ought to inquire whether the way is smooth and easy or rugged and difficult. And this is a question which I should like to ask of you who have arrived at the time which the poets call the threshold of old age. Is life harder towards the end, or what report do you give of it? I will tell you, Socrates, he said, what my own feeling is. Men of my age flock together. We are birds of a feather, as the old proverb says. And at our meetings, the tale of my acquaintance commonly is, I cannot eat, I cannot drink. The pleasures of youth and love are fled away. There was a good time once, 
But now that is gone, and life is no longer life. Some complain of the slights which are put upon them by relations, and they will tell you sadly of how many evils their old age is the cause. But to me, Socrates, these complainers seem to blame that which is not really in fault. For if old age were the cause, I too being old, and every other old man, would have felt as they do. But this is not my own experience, nor that of the others whom I have known. How well I remember the aged poet Sophocles, when in answer to the question, How does love suit with age? Sophocles, are you still the man you were? Peace, he replied. Most gladly have I escaped the thing of which you speak. I feel as if I had escaped from a mad and furious master. His words have often occurred to my mind since, and they seem as good to me now as at the time when he uttered them. For certainly old age has a great sense of calm and freedom. When the passions relax their hold, then, as Sophocles says, we are freed from the grasp not of one mad master only, but of many. The truth is, Socrates, that these regrets, and also the complaints about relations, are to be attributed to the same cause, which is not old age, but men's characters and tempers. For he who is of a calm and happy nature will hardly feel the pressure of age, but to him who is of an opposite disposition, youth and age are equally a burden. I listened in admiration and wanting to draw him out that he might go on. Yes, Cephalus, I said. But I rather suspect that people in general are not convinced by you when you speak thus. They think that old age sits lightly upon you, not because of your happy disposition, but because you are rich and wealth is well known to be a great comforter. You are right, he replied. They are not convinced, and there is something in what they say. Not, however, so much as they imagine. I might answer them, as Themistocles answered the Seraphian, who was abusing him and saying that he was famous, not for his own merits, but because he was an Athenian. If you had been a native of my country, or I of yours, neither of us would have been famous. And to those who are not rich and are impatient of old age, the same reply may be made. For to the good, poor man, old age cannot be a light burden, nor can a bad, rich man ever have peace with himself. May I ask, Cephalus, whether your fortune was for the most part inherited or acquired by you? Acquired. Socrates, do you want to know how much I acquired? In the art of making money, I have been midway between my father and grandfather. For my grandfather, whose name I bear, doubled and trebled the value of his patrimony, that which he inherited being much what I possess now. But my father, Lysanias, reduced the property below what it is at present, and I shall be satisfied if I leave to these my sons not less but a little more than I received. That was why I asked you the question, I replied, because I see that you are indifferent about money, which is a characteristic rather of those who have inherited their fortunes 
than those who have acquired them. The makers of fortunes have a second love of money as a creation of their own, resembling the affection of authors for their own poems or of parents for their children. Besides that natural love of it for the sake of use and profit which is common to them and all men. And hence, they are very bad company, for they can talk about nothing but the praises of wealth. That is true, he said. Yes, that is very true. But may I ask another question? What do you consider to be the greatest blessing which you have reaped from your wealth? One, he said, of which I could not expect easily to convince others. For let me tell you, Socrates, that when a man thinks himself to be near death, fears and cares enter into his mind which he had never had before. The tales of a world below and the punishment which is exacted there of deeds done here were once a laughing matter to him, but now he is tormented with the thought that they may be true, either from the weakness of age or because he is now drawing nearer to that other place. He has a clearer view of these things. Suspicions and alarms crowd thickly upon him, and he begins to reflect and consider what wrongs he has done to others. And when he finds that the sum of his transgressions is great, he will many a time, like a child, start up in his sleep for fear, and he is filled with dark forebodings. But to him who is conscious of no sin, Sweet hope, as Pindar charmingly says, is the kind nurse of his age. Hope, he says, cherishes the soul of him who lives in justice and holiness and is the nurse of his age and the companion of his journey. Hope which is the mightiest to sway the restless soul of man. How admirable are his words and the great blessing of riches, I do not say to every man, but to a good man, is that he has had no occasion to deceive or to defraud others, either intentionally or unintentionally. And when he departs to the world below, he is not in any apprehension about offerings due to the gods or debts which he owes to men. Now to this peace of mind, the possession of wealth greatly contributes, and therefore I say, that, setting one thing against another, of the many advantages which wealth has to give to a man of sense, this is in my opinion the greatest. Well said, Cephalus, I replied, but as concerning justice, what is it? To speak the truth and to pay your debts? No more than this. And even to this, are there not exceptions? Suppose that a friend, when in his right mind, has deposited arms with me, and he asks for them when he is not in his right mind. Ought I to give them back to him? No one would say that I ought or that I should be right in doing so, many more than they would say I ought always to speak the truth to one who is in his condition. You are quite right, he replied. But then, I said, speaking the truth and paying your debts is not a correct definition of justice. Quite correct, Socrates. If Simonides is to be believed, said Polymarchus, interposing. I fear, said Cephalus, that I must go now, 
for I have to look after the sacrifices, and I hand over the argument to Polymarchus and the company. Is not Polymarchus your heir, I said. To be sure, he answered, and went away laughing to the sacrifices. Tell me then, O thou heir of the argument, what did Simonides say, and according to you truly say about justice? He said that the repayment of a debt is just, and in saying so, he appears to me to be right. I should be sorry to doubt the word of such a wise and inspired man, but his meaning, though probably clear to you, is the reverse of clear to me. For he certainly does not mean, as we were just now saying, that I ought to return a deposit of arms, or of anything else, to one who asks for it, when he is not in his right senses. And yet, a deposit cannot be denied to be a debt. True. Then when the person who asks me is not in his right mind, am I by no means to make the return? Certainly not. When Simonides said that the repayment of a debt was justice, he did not mean to include that case. Certainly not, for he thinks that a friend ought always to do good to a friend and never evil. You mean that the return of a deposit of gold, which is to the injury of the receiver, if the two parties are friends, is not the repayment of debt. That is what you imagine him to say. Yes. And our enemies also to receive what we owe to them. To be sure, he said, they are to receive what we owe them. And an enemy, as I take it, owes to an enemy that which is due or proper to him. That is to say, evil. Simonides then, after the manner of poets who seemed to have spoken darkly of the nature of justice, for he really meant to say that justice is the giving to each man what is proper to him, and this he termed a debt. That must have been his meeting, he said. By heaven, I reply. And if we asked him, what due or proper thing is given by medicine, and to whom? What answer do you think he would make to us? He would surely reply that medicine gives drugs and meat and drink to human bodies. And what due or proper thing is given by cookery, and to what? Seasoning to food. And what is that which justice gives, and to whom? If, Socrates, we are to be guided at all by the analogy of the preceding instances, then justice is the art which gives good to friends and evil to enemies. That is his meaning, then? I think so. And who is best able to do good to his friends and evil to his enemies in time of sickness? The physician. Or when they are on a voyage amid the perils of the sea. The pilot. And in what sort of actions or with a view to what result is the just man most able to do harm to his enemy? and good to his friend. In going to war against the one and in making alliances with the other. But when a man is well, my dear Polymarchus, there is no need of a physician. No, 
and he who is not on a voyage has no need of a pilot. No. Then in time of peace, justice will be of no use. I am very far from thinking so. You think that justice may be of use in peace as well as in war? Yes. Like husbandry for the acquisition of corn? Yes. Or like shoemaking for the acquisition of shoes? That is what you mean? Yes. And what similar use of power of acquisition has justice in time of peace? In contract, Socrates, justice is of use. And by contracts do you mean partnerships? Exactly. But is the just man or the skillful player a more useful and better partner at a game of drafts? The skillful player. And in the laying of bricks and stones, is the just man a more useful or better partner than the builder? Quite the reverse. Then in what sort of partnership is the just man a better partner than the harp player? As in playing the harp, the harp player is certainly a better partner than the just man. In a money partnership, Yes, Polymarchus, but surely not in the use of money, for you do not want a just man to be your counselor in the purchase or sale of a horse. A man who is knowing about horses would be better for that, would he not? Certainly. And when you want to buy a ship, the shipwright or the pilot would be better. True. Then what is that joint use of silver or gold in which the just man is to be preferred? When you want a deposit to be kept safely. You mean when money is not wanted but allowed to lie? Precisely. That is to say, Justice is useful when money is useless. That is the inference. And when you want to keep a pruning hook safe, then justice is useful to the individual and to the state. But when you want to use it, then the art of the vine dresser. Clearly. And when you want to keep a shield or a lyre, and not to use them, you would say that justice is useful. But when you want to use them, then the art of the soldier, or of the musician. Certainly. And so of all other things, justice is useful when they are useless, and useless when they are useful. That is the inference then justice is not good for much. But let us consider this further point. Is not he who can best strike a blow in a boxing match or in any kind of fighting best able to ward off a blow? Certainly. And he who is most skillful in preventing or escaping from a disease is best able to create one. True and he is the best guard of a camp who is best able to steal a march upon the enemy. Certainly. Then he who is a good keeper of anything is also a good thief. That, I suppose, is to be inferred. Then if the just man is good at keeping money, he is good at stealing it. That is implied in the argument. Then after all, the just man has turned out to be a thief. And this is a lesson 
which I suspect you must have learnt out of Homer. For he, speaking of Autolysus, the maternal grandfather of Odysseus, who was a favorite of his, affirms that he was excellent above all men in theft and perjury. And so, you and Homer and Simonides are agreed that justice is an art of theft, to be practiced, however, for the good of friends and for the harm of enemies. That was what you were saying. No, certainly not that, though I do not know what I did say, but I still stand by the latter words. Well, there is another question. By friends and enemies, do we mean those who are so really, or only in seeming? Surely, he said, a man may be expected to love those whom he thinks good, and to hate those whom he thinks evil. Yes, but do not persons often err about good and evil? Many who are not good seem to be so, and conversely. That is true. Then to them the good will be enemies, and the evil will be their friends. True. And in that case they will be right in doing good to the evil, and evil to the good. Clearly. But the good are just, and would not do an injustice. True. Then according to your argument, it is just to injure those who do no wrong. Nay, Socrates, the doctrine is immoral. Then I suppose that we ought to do good to the just, and harm to the unjust. I like that better. But see the consequence. Many a man who is ignorant of human nature has friends who are bad friends, and in that case he ought to do harm to them, and he has good enemies whom he ought to benefit. But, if so, we shall be saying that the very opposite of that which we affirm to be the meaning of Simonides. Very true, he said and I think that we had better correct an error into which we seem to have fallen in the use of the words friend and enemy. What was the error, Polemarchus, I asked. We assume that he is a friend who seems to be, or who is thought good. And how is the error to be corrected? We should rather say that he is a friend who is, as well as seems, good, and that he who seems only and is not good only seems to be and is not a friend, and of an enemy the same may be said. You would argue that the good are our friends and the bad our enemies? Yes. And instead of saying simply as we did at first, that it is just to do good to our friends and harm to our enemies, we should further say, it is just to do good to our friends when they are good and harm our enemies when they are evil. Yes, that appears to me to be the truth. but ought the just to injure anyone at all. Undoubtedly, he ought to injure those who are both wicked and his enemies. When horses are injured, are they improved or deteriorated? The latter. Deteriorated, that is to say, in the good qualities of horses, not of dogs. Yes, of horses. And dogs are deteriorated in the good qualities of dogs, and not of horses. 
of course, and will not men who are injured be deteriorated in that which is the proper virtue of man? Certainly. And that human virtue is justice, to be sure. Then men who are injured are of necessity made unjust. That is the result. But can the musician by his art make men unmusical? Certainly not. Or the horseman by his art make them bad horsemen? Impossible. And can the just by justice make men unjust? Or speaking generally, can the good by virtue make them bad? Assuredly not. Any more than heat can produce cold. It cannot. Or drought moisture. Clearly not. Nor can the good harm anyone. Impossible. And the just is the good. Certainly. Then to injure a friend or anyone else is not the act of a just man, but of the opposite, who is the unjust. I think that what you say is quite true, Socrates. Then if a man says that justice consists in the repayment of debts, and that good is the debt which a just man owes his friends, and evil the debt which he owes his enemies, to say this is not wise. For it is not true, if, as has clearly been shown, the injuring of another can be in no case just. I agree with you, said Polymarchus. Then you and I are prepared to take up arms against anyone who attributes such a saying to Simonides or Bias or Pittacus or any other wise man or seer. I am quite ready to do battle at your side, he said. Shall I tell you whose I believe the saying to be? I believe that Periander, or Perdiccas, or Xerxes, or Ismenius the Theban, or some other rich and mighty man who had a great opinion of his power, was the first to say that justice is doing good to your friends and harm to your enemies. Most true. Yes, I said. But if this definition of justice also breaks down, what other can be offered? Several times in the course of the discussion, Thrasymachus had made an attempt to get the argument into his own hands, and had been put down by the rest of the company who wanted to hear the end. But when Polymarchus and I had done speaking, and there was a pause, he could no longer hold his peace. And, gathering himself up, he came at us like a wild beast, seeking to devour us. We were quite panic-stricken at the sight of him. He roared out to the whole company, What folly Socrates has taken possession of you all? And why, silly billies, to you knock under to one another. I say that if you want to really know what justice is, you should not only ask, but answer, and you should not seek honor to yourself from that refutation of an opponent, but have your own answer. For there is many a one who can ask and cannot answer. And now, I will not have you say that justice is duty or advantage or profit or gain or interest, for this sort of nonsense will not do for me. I must have clearness and accuracy 
I was panic-stricken at his words and could not look at him without trembling. Indeed, I believe that if I had not fixed my eye upon him, I should have been struck dumb. But when I saw his fury rising, I looked at him first and was therefore able to reply to him. Thrasymachus, I said with a quiver, don't be hard upon us. Polymarchus and I may have been guilty of a little mistake in the argument, but I can assure you that the error was not intentional. If we were seeking for a piece of gold, you would not imagine that we were knocking under to one another and so losing our chance of finding it. And why, when we are seeking for justice, a thing more precious than many pieces of gold, do you say that we are weakly yielding to one another and not doing our utmost to get at the truth? Nay, my good friend, we are most willing and anxious to do so, but the fact is that we cannot. And if so, you people who know all things should pity us and not be angry with us. How characteristic of Socrates, he replied with a bitter laugh. That's your ironical style. Did I not foresee, have I not already told you, that whatever he was asked he would refuse to answer and try irony or any other shuffle in order that he might avoid answering? You are a philosopher, Brasimachus, I replied, and well know that if you ask a person what numbers make up twelve, taking care to prohibit him who you ask from answering twice six, or three times four, or six times two, or four times three, for this sort of nonsense will not do for me. Then obviously, if that is your way of putting the question, no one can answer you. But suppose that he were to retort, Thrasymachus, what do you mean? If one of these numbers which you interdict be the true answer to the question, am I falsely to say some other number which is not the right one? Is that your meaning? How do you answer him? Just as if the two cases were at all alike, he said. Why should they not be, I replied. And even if they are not, but only appear to be so to the person who is asked, ought he not to say what he thinks, whether you and I forbid him or not? I presume then, that you are going to make one of the interdicted answers. I dare say that I may, notwithstanding the danger, if upon reflection I approve of any of them. But what if I give you an answer about justice, other or better, he said, than any of these? What do you deserve to have done to you? Done to me? As becomes the ignorant, I must learn from the wise. That is what I deserve to have done to me. What? And no payment. A pleasant notion. I will pay when I have money, I replied. But you have, Socrates, said Glaucon. And you, Thrasymachus, need be under no anxiety about money for we will all make a contribution for Socrates. Yes, he replied, and then Socrates will do as he always does, refuse to answer himself, but take and pull to pieces the answer of someone else. Why, my good friend, I said, how can anyone answer who knows and says that he knows just nothing? And who? even if he has some faint notions of his own, is told by a man of authority not to utter them. The natural thing is 
that the speaker should be someone like yourself who professes to know and can tell what he knows. Will you then kindly answer for the edification of the company and of myself? Glaucon and the rest of the company joined my request, and Thrasymachus, as anyone might see, was in reality eager to speak, for he thought that he had an excellent answer and would distinguish himself. But at first he affected to insist on my answering. At length he consented to begin. Behold, he said, the wisdom of Socrates. He refuses to teach himself and goes about learning of others to whom he never even says thank you. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.